We're continuing through the gospel according to Mark this morning, so open your Bibles or access your device to Mark chapter 3, verse 1, and today we talk about the day Jesus was good and mad. Now, when I was a kid, I used to love to read comic books, and I'm so old, I can remember when comic books cost a dime. Anybody else remember that? A dime. So, of course, I read the Superman comic books, I read the Batman comic books, but One that I really liked also was The Incredible Hulk, written by Stan Lee. And, of course, now he's one of the Marvel creatures, and I think Mark Ruffalo plays him. And in that uh, comic book, and even in the show and in the movies, it's like Dr. Bruce Banner says, you don't want to get me mad. You won't like me when I get mad. And The Incredible Hulk is kind of a parable for a lot of people. Maybe you may be one of them. A lot of people who can just get angry and turn into a rageaholic almost overnight. Rage and anger is a problem. And if you know somebody that struggles with that or if you struggle with it, then this message is for you today. When I was just a kid growing up in lower Alabama, uh, I had a friend by the name of Jimmy Dean. Nothing to do with sausage. (laughs) I guess we were maybe, you know... Uh, 10 or 11 years old, and I was over at his house playing, and there's a little grocery store around the corner, a little mom-and-pop grocery store, and he wanted some money to buy some candy. So he went into his mother, where his mother was in the house and said, Mom, can I have some money? David and I want to buy some candy. And she said, No, you're going to spoil your supper. Well, Jimmy proceeded to demonstrate my very first ever temper tantrum. He got down on the floor He pounded his fist on the floor and kicked his legs, feet on the floor, and he screamed out, Mommy, Mommy, you hate me. You don't ever let me do anything. And he just started crying and screaming, yelling. And to my surprise, his mother came in there and said, Jimmy, Jimmy, settle down, settle down. All right, here's some money. You guys go get some candy. And I'm thinking, I have discovered the key to life. (laughs) I know now how to manipulate my parents. So just that same afternoon, I went to my house where my mother was outside raking leaves. We had a bunch of oak trees, and our front yard always was filled with leaves. And so I came up there, and she said, David, pick up that other rake and start helping me rake the leaves. And I didn't want to do that. So I pitched a temper tantrum right there on the grass. I got down there on my face and hands and just started pounding, kicking, and I talked about my brother and sister. You never have Judy or Danny rake the leaves or you don't like me. You hate me. You make me do all the work. I think it was working pretty good for a while, but what I did not realize is while I was having my temper tantrum, my mother had walked behind me with that rake, and she started beating me like she's killing a snake. And this wasn't those old, this wasn't those plastic tines. These were the old metal tines. She said, don't you ever do that again. In fact, she said, you're going to have to rake all the leaves by yourself. I got him. said, yes, ma'am. That was my first and last temper tantrum. So kiddos, don't try temper tantrums, okay? And parents, don't let your kids manipulate you with a temper tantrum. Now, you probably think Jesus was perfect. And so you say, well, if he was perfect... Did he ever get mad? Well, as we're going to see in this passage of Scripture, yes, he got mad, but he was good and mad. So let's look here at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You're welcome to stand with me as we read all the way through verse 12. 
Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, or to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them, and here it is, in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees, now these are the ultra-conservatives, went out and began to plot with the Herodians. These are the ultra-liberals, how they might kill Jesus. Now, for these two groups to get together would be like Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz co-sponsoring a bill. These two groups hated each other, but one thing they agreed upon, we got to get rid of this Jesus. Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the region across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. That's all the way up to what is modern-day Lebanon. Because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits, the demonic spirits, saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, that your word will take root in the hearts of everyone who has ears to hear, especially, Lord, someone who has a problem with rage and anger. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to them by your Holy Spirit. And for those, Lord, who need to get good, good and mad about some things in our lives and our world, I pray you'd motivate them to be good and mad. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Be seated. So sometimes people think Jesus was just, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, never got upset, never raised his voice. But no, he had a fiery side to him. And some of the harshest words he ever spoke were to these religious professionals. I call them the religious mafia, the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians. And they're just waiting for a chance to kill him. And look, this is the third chapter of Mark. This is so early in his ministry, and they're already trying to kill him. So we're going to talk today about some different kinds of anger. Talk about how he got mad, and then we'll talk about how he was good. Number one, Jesus was mad at the hardened hearts of the Pharisees. Now, some people think all anger is sinful, but it's not. There are different kinds of anger in the New Testament. There are several words for anger, and we're going to look at two of them right now. There's a word in the New Testament Greek that's thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S, and it means furious rage. It is hateful, harmful anger, explosive anger. And we find that word in Ephesians 4.31 where the Bible says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, there's the word, thumos, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. In other words, get rid of that kind of anger. 
Have you ever heard somebody say that just makes my blood boil, that just burns me up? You know, we, we have created a word in 1977. It became an official word in the uh, dictionary, road rage. It's amazing how many people are victims and participate in road rage, just explosive kind of anger. And throughout history, there have been a lot of people who've struggled with this. Maybe you've all heard from history, Alexander the Great, who at the age of 33 had conquered much of the known world. What you may not know is he had an explosive anger problem. One night at a banquet, he was with a friend of his, his best friend, it was said, Cletus. Cletus, who had saved him in battle many times, but they got into an argument and Alexander the Great threw a spear at Cletus to scare him. But the spear pierced his heart And Alexander the Great killed his best friend in a fit of anger. One historian said of Alexander the Great, he conquered many nations, but he could not conquer his own temper. And the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 32, better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. So some of you may work with a rageaholic. You may be married to a rageaholic. You may have one in your neighborhood because, uh, trust me, they are are everywhere. But God can give rageaholics the power, the strength to control their temper. Probably about 20 years ago in Tyler, uh, we used to have this golf tournament where PGA pros would come in and play. We were raising money for UT Tyler. It was called the Eisenhower Golf Classic. And I played in it a number of years with some PGA uh, players. One year I was paired up with, with an older golfer, uh, Don January. You might not recognize the name, but he won 32 times on the Seniors Tee and on the PGA Tour. 1967, he was the PGA champion. Nice guy, but he had a foul mouth. I mean, when we got to about the third or fourth hole, he had dropped every bomb you can imagine. I mean, he had taken the name of the Lord in vain so many times. Every time he'd miss a putt or the ball wouldn't go, he just would fill the air with profanity. And on the fourth green, he walks over to me and says, hey, David, what do you do? I said, "I'm, I'm the pastor of a Baptist church here in town. He said, well, I've been a Baptist all my life too. I said, yeah, you talk like one. (laughs) Some I've heard, but then he was so nice, so apologetic. He said, preacher, man, please just forgive me. I've just got this dirty, rotten old mouth and I'm sorry, preacher. I just can't control it. That's what he said. I just can't control it. But guess what? For the entire rest of that round, how much profanity do you think he spoke? Not a single word. So yes, it is something that can be controlled. So that's the kind of anger, thumos, rage that you want to get rid of. But there's another kind of anger that's a good kind of anger, and it is the Greek word orge, and it is settled indignation. It's holy anger, and this is the kind of anger Jesus had. It says in Ephesians 4:26. In your anger, and the word there is orge, do not sin. In other words, there is a kind of anger that you can have and not sin. And then, this is a great verse for husbands and wives, do not let the sun go down while you are still 
anger. It's the kind of anger that doesn't linger with you. It's the kind of anger that you can set aside because it's not a volatile, explosive anger. It is a settled indignation. You know, and Jesus was mad at these religious professionals because their hearts were hardened, their stubborn attitude. It's like they had calluses on their hearts. And, you know, sometimes people who handle religious things, religious matters, even a lot of religious songs, a lot of religious Bible studies, sometimes the more you handle them, the harder your heart gets just because you've handled it so much. Here's an example of that. One year in high school, during the summer, I worked at a sawmill in South Alabama. And it was hard work because they would cut the logs into to, to lumber. And this was before the lumber had been planed smooth. So it would come down what was called a green chain because it was green lumber. And me and the other guys, we had to pull that lumber off the green chain and stack it up according to the size of the wood. And so I, I wore these canvas gloves, thick canvas canvas gloves, white mule gloves. And about every three weeks, I would wear a pair out. That's how splintery and rough that wood was. But there were some other guys, some older guys that worked there. They called me the kid. They didn't even wear gloves. I couldn't believe it. They, they, they just pull that green lumber off splinters and all. They've been doing it for so long. They'd handled it so long that they'd developed so many calluses and their hands were so hard. I always said shaking hands with one of them was like shaking hands with a lobster. And we had a good time. We, we laughed it up and they called me kid. And they said, now kid, we're going to train you to do our job because one of these days we're going to retire. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to college. <laughs> but they were fun to work with. But they handled it so much, calluses had grown over their hands. I think that can happen spiritually speaking. I think you can get so used to handling the things of God that you can develop hardened heart. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, be careful that a hardened heart does not grow up in you. So what are some things that we ought to be good and mad about? Jesus was mad about the hardness of their hearts. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm plenty mad. I'm not raging, but I'm plenty mad that since 1973, our country has taken the lives of 60 million preborn children. People that were never given a chance at life. And our Declaration of Independence says that we, are be, we had the inalienable rights of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. They, they never got a chance at life. I wonder if one of them would have been the next Billy Graham. Who knows? The next Ronald Reagan. We don't know. Their lives were snuffed out because our government allowed that to happen. I'm good and mad about that. I'm, I'm good and mad about what pornography has done in the lives of marriages and individuals and families. I'm, I'm good and mad about what drug abuse has done to so many families. I'm, I'm good and mad that here in Texas we have a problem with human trafficking and slavery greater than ever before. Those are some things we need to be good and mad about. But here's the difference. The difference in this kind of anger and this is number three on your outline. Righteous anger never attacks a person. It always addresses a problem. It never attacks a person. It always addresses a problem. I was actually watching the 1978 Gator Bowl. And uh, Woody Hayes was coaching for the Iowa State Buckeyes. 
He would have gone on to be one of the greatest coaches in all of college football history, except for what he did that night. Toward the end of the game, the Ohio State quarterback threw a pass and a member of Clemson's defense intercepted the pass and ran into the sideline where Woody Hayes was, the coach, the head coach. Woody Hayes on national television grabbed the opposing player from Clemson by the helmet and starts punching him in the neck. He's so angry that this guy intercepted a pass in a game. And it's like when everybody saw that happen, it's like, oh, no, Uh, this guy won't be coaching in the morning. And he wasn't. And he lost so much of the esteem that he had earned through the years just simply because he attacked a person. That, that's the thumos. That's not the orge. Let me give you an example of what happens when you're good and mad. In 1980, there was a 13-year-old girl by the name of Carrie Leitner. She was run over crossing a street by a drunk driver. And this drunk driver had just been bailed out for his second DUI. And was drunk at the time. And Carrie's mother, Candy, could have attacked that man. But instead, what she did, she started an organization called Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. And today there are 3 million members, 600 uh, organizations in different countries in America and around the world. She, she addressed the problem. That's what being good and angry is all about. So stay away from the rage, the raging anger. But let's step up as followers of Jesus Christ and let's get good and mad about some of the things that need to change in our culture. Let's move on now to the good part because I said he was good and angry. Well, the second main part of the message was Jesus was good to those in need. And we're just going to hit these quickly. Three examples of how he was good. First of all, he healed the man with a deformed hand. Now, in the parallel passage in Luke, Dr. Luke tells us importantly that this was this man's right hand. That's important because in the Bible, in the Jewish culture, the right hand is the clean hand. It's the kosher hand. You would always eat with your right hand. You would always bless with your right hand. The Bible even says God upholds us with his mighty right hand. The left hand... That was the unclean hand, the unkosher hand. That's why Jesus said, you don't need to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So for all of you lefties out there, I'm sorry, you're you're not kosher, okay? But this man's right hand was paralyzed. So he was handicapped, not just physically, but also religiously, emotionally. There was so much that he couldn't do correctly according to the Jewish culture. And so he, he, he... Jesus called him forward. This was not going to be a private miracle. He wanted everybody to see it. But he didn't touch him. He didn't put any oil on or anything. He just stood there and he said, stretch out your hand. Now, to me, there's a little bit of uncertainty in that. Because if I'd have been that guy, I would have said, well, Lord, that's the very thing I can't do. I can't stretch it out. Stretch out your hand. Because when Jesus tells you to do something, he gives you the power to do it and suddenly the guy stretched out his hand and don't you know everybody in that synagogue was just jumping up and praising God hallelujah <laughs> some of them were but some of them were saying we got to kill this guy he's he's at it again he's desecrating the Sabbath he's working on the Sabbath 
But you know, there's a lesson there that I think that we can learn, and we're going to circle back to that at the end. But sometimes Jesus tells us to do things that seem to be impossible for us, but if he gives us the word to do it, he also gives us the power to do it. Remember a few weeks ago when those four guys brought their friend to Jesus and tore up the roof and lowered him? Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. That's the one thing he couldn't do. He couldn't take up his bed and walk. He was paralyzed. But Jesus told him to do it. And on the power of that word, he did it. Same thing at the pool of Bethesda. That guy had been paralyzed for a long time. Jesus said, take up your mat and walk. And he did it. He told Peter, Peter, walk on the water. Peter never walked on water before. So he was walking on the water, but he really wasn't walking on water. He's walking on the word of Jesus. I tell you what, the word of Jesus has got a lot more power than any water. In fact, there's a verse you want to jot it down. Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What are you facing right now that seems to be impossible? Did you know what? Impossible is not in God's dictionary. In fact, actually, impossible is not in my dictionary. A few years ago when we really had dictionaries, I'm talking about real paper, big, thick dictionaries. I took an exacto pen and I cut out the word impossible out of my dictionary. Somebody said, what is the implication of that? And I said, I don't know, because that was on the other side of the page, so I don't know what implication means either. <laughs> but I mean, if you, really, if you really trust in God, cut the word impossible out of your dictionary. So he healed that man. Number two, he received the crowds who came to him. You know, sometimes Jesus tried to escape from the crowds, but he also loved to be with the crowds and preach to the crowds and healed the crowds. There was such a crowd from all over the region that he had to go out and stand in a boat. Now, in Luke 5, we're told it's Peter's boat. It's kind of interesting that the entire ministry of Jesus in Galilee took place in about a half-mile circle there, half-mile curve in the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee, which is a freshwater lake. I mean, all those places are just there. You can visit where he fed the 5,000 where he walked on water, where he did all those miracles. And it's just amazing. And so there's always boats there. And, and it's, it's an area that still has fishermen today. Something a little interesting, by the way, in 1970s, there was a big drought. And there were a couple of guys from the kibbutz in Afghanistan, where we often stay. And they were digging in the mud, and they found something strange. They found the remains of a boat that carbon dated to the time of Jesus. And so they very carefully extracted it from the mud. They built a museum for it and they put a picture on the wall of, of from the time of Jesus, what some of those boats look like. Now, is that the exact boat that Jesus stood in or went in? We don't know. We'll have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. But it was a boat like that, that Jesus used as a pulpit to go out from the, from the shore to be able to talk. And one final thing here, he demonstrated authority over demonic spirits. And when we get to Mark 5, that's when I will talk a lot about demons. As we talk about the man who was possessed by a legion of demons. But for now, let's just know demons are real. They're not made up. They're not fairy tales. They are real. Angels and demons exist. And demons want to do what their leader, Lucifer, wants to do. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. 
So whenever there's killing, there's stealing, or anything's being destroyed, you can always find the devil's fingerprints or demon's fingerprints there. Demons don't want you to know God or don't want you to serve God. But this is what they all did that day. The Bible says they were coming and they were falling down before Jesus saying, you are the son of God. We know who you are. You are the son of God. They confessed. You know, the writer of James says, well, it's good that you believe. The devils believe and they tremble. Yeah, the demons know who Jesus is. And they confessed it openly. Even though it was so early in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus said, I don't want you talking about that right now. But when I'm thinking about those demons there on the seashore confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, it just reminded me of what's going to happen in the future. According to Philippians 2.11, the Bible says one day, Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess in heaven, in the earth, and under the earth. And everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The devil will, will confess that. The demons will confess that. Adolf Hitler will confess that. Vladimir Putin will confess that. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Joe Biden, Queen Elizabeth, everybody's going to bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, as I've talked about that through the years, some people have asked me, Pastor, I'm a little confused. Does that mean when they say Jesus is Lord that God's going to say, come on into heaven? No, not at all. These are going to be doing it after they've had the chance to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And they're announcing it by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, but they never took the gift of eternal life. Let me tell you about the difference when somebody says it in, in judgment. And when you and I speak that in joy, it's one important word, one little two letter word. It's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord. It's something else totally different to say, Jesus is is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. You know, there's a lot of difference between saying the Lord is a shepherd. That's true. But it makes a whole lot of difference to say the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus is my Lord. Would you say that out loud with me right now? Let's profess it. Jesus is my Lord. Do it one more time like you mean it. Jesus is my Lord. We'll, we profess it in joy, and they will profess it in judgment. A couple of takeaways is not on your outline, but just takeaway number one, learn to practice righteous, holy anger instead of explosive, harmful anger, okay? Avoid it. It can be controlled. Takeaway truth number two, if you have a need, put yourself in the sandals of the man with a paralyzed hand. One of my favorite preachers I've read through the years was the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. You can't quote him too much because he used so much flowery language. But I was reading him a while back, and he was comparing this man's hand being healed with the miracle of conversion. And I thought it was such a good comparison. I want to read it to you. It's just one paragraph. This is Charles Spurgeon. It must indeed have been a very beautiful sight to see that poor, withered, wilted hand first clenched tightly and then stretched out before all the people in the middle of the synagogue. Do you not see the blood begin to flow, the nerves gaining power, and the hand opening like a reviving flower? 
Oh, the delight of his sparkling eyes. Then he turned, looked at the blessed one who had healed him and seemed anxious to fall down at his feet and give him all the praise. Here's the comparison. Even so, we cannot explain conversion and the new birth. But we know this. Jesus Christ says, believe. And we believe. By our own power, no. But as we will to believe, and he gives us that will, there comes a power to do according to his good pleasure. I look around me, wondering where is the man or woman with a need today? To you, I say, in my master's name, stretch out that hand of yours. A great thing shall be done unto you. Believe now. Trust Jesus. And you can be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Many of you hearing my voice today have already trusted Jesus. He gave you the word to believe and you, you believed with his power. But if you're watching on live stream or in this room and haven't yet done that, please allow me to lead you in a prayer that expresses faith to do this. You can just repeat this prayer after me. Dear God, I admit I am a sinner. I can never be good enough to earn heaven. I turn from my sin and I place my faith in you, Jesus. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Please come into my life and take full control. I will live for you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.